The sermon text for today is Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 and 50 through 53. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1610, 16, 10. Please listen as, <clears throat> excuse me, listen as I read God's word. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. And then verse 50. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you all. He is risen. It's great to be with you here this morning. And I guess the main question I have is, whose idea was it to give our kiddos a whole bunch of candy before we asked them to sit in the gathering with us and not have any children's sermon time? That would be me. So thank you very much. As we look at this passage from Luke chapter 24 this morning, I'd like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, this morning we worship you as our risen and ascended and victorious King. We are grateful for the kind of life that is now open to us because of what you have done in your resurrection. And we ask this morning that as we look at this passage and as we think about the good news of Easter Sunday, we ask that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would cause our hearts to be overflowing with joy and adoration and wonder and worship at your goodness. Lord, we ask that this morning your Holy Spirit would be at work among us in a unique and special way. We ask that he would be present with us, enabling us to see and to illuminate what is in this passage for us. 
Help us to see Jesus, our risen and ascended Savior, and change us into his likeness, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. There are a lot of things these days that come as a package deal. I'm sure you've noticed this. If you've ever purchased a car from a dealership, whether that's a new car or a used car, I'm certain that you've had the experience of they want to sell you the car, but then there's also the warranty that comes along with it, which they've still been trying to reach you about with all those phone calls that you get <laughs> and the voicemails, right? Uh, and then there's, you know, the, there's the winter undercoating, the sort of anti-rust thing they can put underneath there, and there's the, the maintenance packages, and there's all the sort of the little things that they want to sort of include in this package deal for you as you purchase that vehicle. Uh, if you're here today and you're married, you know that marriage is in a way a package deal, right? Where you not only get to uh, receive your spouse from their family, but in a way you also marry into their family of origin. And they bring a part of their family of origin, for better or for worse, into this new family that you are creating. And so marriage itself is a kind of package deal. We can think about all of the products and services nowadays that are uh, given to us with this sort of allure of bundle and save, right? You know, if you bundle and save, uh, you can bundle your home and car and auto insurance and all that stuff together. If you put this many lines together on your cell phone package, you get this much of a discount. And there's all these things that come to us with a bundle and save option. Uh, and then just think of the myriad of subscriptions that are out there, <laughs> okay? Sure, you could get just like plain old boring Hulu, which is like a couple dollars a month, but then you get to watch the TV, but there's these commercials in it. But if you pay a little bit more, you can get Hulu plus, 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 which comes with sports and it comes with Disney plus and it comes with all these things that if you bundle them together, you can get this package deal and save. So we are very familiar with things that come to us as a package deal. On a day like today, on Easter Sunday, there are people all around the world who are focused on the resurrection of Jesus. And what I'd like to do for us this morning is sort of just zoom out, pull back just a little bit, and explore this morning how the good news about Jesus comes to us as a package deal. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is a part of a larger package deal. Um, so in other words, the good news about Jesus is more than just that Jesus rose from the dead. The good news is that Jesus was crucified that Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus ascended and now sits at the right hand of, of the Father and rules and reigns over all things. And these three things, the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, these things actually come as a part of a package deal. They belong together. And so what I want to do this morning is look at this passage, which uh, tells us about each of these things, and just look at these three aspects of the good news about Jesus. And the way that I'll just sort of summarize it this morning is in a way I think you can hopefully remember. There's six words. Those words are he loves, he lives, and he reigns. That's the point of what we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. He loves, he lives, and he reigns. So first, let's look to the cross and see he loves. These women, when they went to the tomb that first Easter Sunday morning, they encounter not Jesus and his body like they were expecting to, but who they come across is these two angels who say to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. So what the angel reminds these women of who came to the tomb that first 
Easter morning, what he reminds them of is Jesus' words that he said to them over and over and over and over again, that he must suffer and die and go to the cross. So the angel's reminding them of Jesus' own insistence that the cross is a central part of God's plan of deliverance. And it's actually the cross that most clearly displays for us and shows us the depth of God's love for us. Now, if you're here today and you're, maybe you would not consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, even if that's the case for you this morning, we have uh, very likely all heard the phrase that's found in the Bible, God is love. And the Bible tells us that God is love, meaning he's not just loving, right? Love is not just one of his attributes, as if he is some sort of cosmic pie, and then there's his, the slice of his love, and then there's his justice, and then there's his mercy, and there's his compassion. Now, what the Bible tells us is that God is love in his essence. That is most essentially who God is. And everything that God does is fueled by and motivated by his love, because God is love. And of course, this leads us to something of a conundrum. Because the same Bible that tells us that God is love is also the same Bible that tells us about human suffering and pain and difficulty and sorrow and grief and death. The same Bible that tells us God is love is the same Bible that records all of these stories of human abuse and violence, abandonment, prejudice, exploitation, marginalization, oppression, injustice. And then we can look to our own experience. We don't have to look just to the Bible or out there into the world. We can look at our own experience and see the difficult things that we face, the sorrow and the grief and the broken relationships. Maybe you have in your life heard words like cancer. Maybe you've walked through infertility. Maybe you've uh, just been living with the accumulation of the effects of old age. There's all sorts of things we look to in our own human experience, and it leads to this question, okay, if God is love... How can I square that with the condition of our world? How can I square that? How does that fit together with my own personal human experience? Because the love of God and the condition of our world seem incompatible together, right? That God is love, not just that he's loving, but that God is essentially love seems to be incompatible with our human experience. But what I want to suggest this morning is that the cross is the only way to make sense of these two things. We look at our human experience And we look at what the Bible says about who God is and that he is love. And the cross of Jesus is the only way that these two things make any sense. And so the cross is what shows us, it reveals for us the love of God. And here's how. At the cross, God did not just give us a part of himself. At the cross, God did not just give of himself. At the cross, God gave himself. And that is essentially the good news of Jesus, is that in the person of Jesus, God himself has taken on humanity and has accompanied us in our fallen humanity. God himself came near to us in the midst of all the difficulty, in the midst of all the brokenness. He didn't just sort of, you know, send a delegation. He didn't send an angel. He didn't just sort of stand at a distance and sort of wave a magic wand and make all the sad things come untrue. No, in the incarnation... And in the cross of Jesus, God himself took on human flesh, accompanied us in our humanity, and he came near to us. God's love is seen in that he did not remain distant, but that he experienced all of the brokenness of our world the way that we experience it. And as you look to the life of Jesus, 
you see this very clearly, that Jesus experienced the absolute worst that our world has to offer. Jesus came and he experienced violence. He experienced injustice. He experienced the depth of emotional and spiritual sorrow and anguish. He experienced the abandonment of his friends. He experienced loneliness. He experienced physical suffering that most of us in this room have no idea what it's, we have no concept of. And not only this, but Jesus, as he hung on the cross, he sat underneath the curse that we deserve for the sin and idolatry that is present in our lives and for the poison and the evil that we unleash into the world through our actions and through our motives. Jesus sat underneath the curse of that. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of the cross is that God did not stay distant from us in the brokenness of our world, but he came near. And in doing so, what this reveals for us is the love of God for us. It reveals the heart of God and how much he loves us, the lengths to which God was willing to go in order to bring redemption and restoration and to to rescue us from ourselves, essentially. And so it's the cross that shows us this beautiful picture of the love of God. But we have to look at not only that he loves, and we look to the cross to see that, we also have to look at how he lives. And we see that in the resurrection. Now, we've become so accustomed to talking about the resurrection that uh, we don't quite understand just how surprising it was for those who were at the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Uh, It was a surprise to them. They weren't expecting Jesus to be raised. And we can see that by looking at these first 12 verses. And we see that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. So these women went to the tomb that Sunday morning, not looking for a risen Jesus. They were looking for the beaten and battered body of their friend who had been tortured, essentially, and executed as a criminal. And his body was laying in that tomb. And those burial spices, you would wrap those up in the linen cloth and it would mask the smell of decomposition. That's what those spices were for. And so these women were not there to find a resurrected, alive Jesus. They were going to prepare the body of their friend who had been executed for his proper burial. And you can see that they go into the tomb and he's not there. And they're sort of standing there scratching their heads, wondering what in the world happened and where is he? And their minds are sort of racing. You have to wonder, you know, they're thinking, what happened? Did someone steal his body? What's going on? Where did he go? And as they're standing there wondering about all of this, these two angels come to them and said, why did you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. And when they heard the message again, it clicked with them. Oh yes, Jesus has been telling us about this very thing. He told us over and over and over and over again. But even in spite of being told that repeatedly, it still didn't click in their minds until they came and found the tomb was empty. So they take this message, this announcement that the tomb is empty, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and they go to the rest of the disciples, and it tells us in verse 11 that they, that is the disciples, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. They thought, these ladies are crazy. This doesn't make any sense. Yes, they lived 2,000 years ago, but it is uh, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery for us to look upon them and to think, oh, how, how pathetic and naive are those people? That they believe that people raised from the dead. <laughs> no, they didn't. That's why the, the words that this man has been raised from the dead seem like nonsense to them, 
right? They lived 2,000 years ago, but they weren't dumb. They understood some things about human biology and about dead people not coming back to life. They understood that. And so you see that in their response. This resurrection that they experienced was not what they went to the tomb to find. They did not go to the tomb looking for a resurrected Jesus, but what they did was they ran face first into historical fact that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. While the cross proves and shows us the love of God, it's the resurrection that shows his authority and his power. There's a tradition that we have in our households on Saturday mornings. Uh, Mama sleeps in, and I get up early, and I spend a little bit of time by myself. And then when the girls wake up, they come down, and we all sit in the chair together. And one of the things that we do is we watch a, like, 10-minute YouTube video. And so they typically pick, you know, some sort of subject that they're interested in. And recently, at least with me anyways, they've been really interested in snakes. So we've been watching all these 10-minute long videos about snakes. And so we've learned all about the most deadliest snakes in the world and the most poisonous snakes in the world and the biggest snakes in the world. And so, you know, of course, YouTube just keeps like feeding you all these videos about snakes then. And so we come across this show called Swamp People. Have you ever heard of this? Swamp People is amazing. It's so good. Okay, so we've learned about poisonous snakes and about big snakes, but then you get to swamp people and there's people who catch snakes. Okay, so the Florida Everglades, uh, there are pythons that have been, you know, whether it's on accident or whatever, unleashed into the wild and they're just decimating the natural wildlife that's there. And so it's, they're actually an invasive species and so there's people whose job it is to go in there and to hunt and to take these pythons and to remove them. But you gotta catch a python. And these are like, 14 foot, 150, 160 pound snakes, right? That could easily like kill you if they got wrapped around you and could constrict you, right? So uh, they go and they catch these snakes and here's what they do. Uh, There's usually two people, unless they're feeling a little bit frisky, they go by themselves, but they pretty much always go with two people. And what happens is that one person, when they find a snake, one person grabs it by the tail, which is more than like most of us would ever dream of doing, right? Uh, They grab it by the tail and then you pull it so that it becomes elongated. Because when the snake has a chance to coil up, that's where it gets all of its sort of like springiness and power that's going to use to, you know, lash out and attack you, right? So one person grabs it by the tail and pulls it this way, while another person stands on the face side of it. I don't know how they decide who gets the short straw on this one. But one person stands in front of it, and and the idea is that they would get just close enough that they could uh, agitate the snake and get it to strike, but not be close enough that it could actually... Uh, hit them, (laughs) you know, bite them. Of course, that works most of the time. There are times where it doesn't work. But anyways, go watch some videos and you'll find out about this, right? So one of the things that I just was fascinated by was the the way that you catch one of these 150 plus pound pythons is you wear it out. Because after, you know, one person's holding it and after four, five, six, ten times of lashing out and striking at you, this snake has completely lost all of its mojo. (laughs) And it doesn't take much for someone to go behind it, come up behind it and just grab it by the head because it's just expended all of its energy. It's expended every ounce of strength it has. And so the point is that each one of those snakes, it lashes out with every ounce of their strength. And in the end, it's not enough. It's not enough to overpower, to overtake those people who are hunting those snakes. This is precisely the kind of thing that happens in the cross and resurrection. On the cross, Satan and all of the spiritual forces of darkness lashed out with every ounce of their strength. 
and it wasn't enough. Satan and all of the spiritual forces of darkness brought the full fury of their hatred and their disdain for Jesus and for God and for his saving purposes in the world. And they, they unleashed everything they had. And as Jesus hung on the cross and had died and was laid in a tomb, it looked as though they had been successful in overpowering him. It looked as though Jesus didn't have the authority or the strength uh, to fight back. And yet it was precisely the cross and the resurrection that proved that Jesus is the one in authority. That they lashed out against him with every single ounce of their strength. And yet Jesus rose demonstrating that Satan and those spiritual forces of darkness have no power. They don't have authority over him. And so the good news for us, what the resurrection shows us is that for, for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have been united to him by faith, his victory over death, his defeat of Satan belongs to us too because we are in him. And so this is the good news of the resurrection that not only does he love, he also lives and he has demonstrated his authority over Satan and that victory is now ours. But the third thing we see this morning is he reigns. We see he reigns and we see that in the last verses of the book of Luke where we read, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he, lift, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So what is the ascension? The ascension of Jesus is essentially his enthronement. The ascension of Jesus is his coronation, where he is uh, officially once and for all set on the throne. And we see uh, throughout the Gospels, which are the biographical accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, all throughout those Gospels, we see that Jesus is presented to us as a king. Right? So Jesus, if, if you look in, in uh, Matthew, for example, his family tree is linked to King David. We also see that after Jesus is born, the Magi come and they, they bow down and they worship him. And they present to him the kinds of gifts you would give a king. You'd give gold and frankincense and myrrh and all these very expensive, very precious things. You'd give those as gifts to royalty. And those are the gifts that are presented to Jesus. And then you see throughout Jesus' ministry as he teaches, he talks all the time about the kingdom of God and talks all the time about himself as the bringer, as the inaugurator of that kingdom, and Jesus himself as the king of the kingdom. And then Jesus' last week of his life that we looked at last week on Palm Sunday, Jesus is welcomed into the city of Jerusalem and welcomed as a king. We also see that Jesus, as he's executed, there's a sign that hangs above him, ironically, that says, King of the Jews. And there's many, many more things we could look at, but, but these are just a sampling of all the different ways that those gospel accounts tell us about Jesus being a king. And of course, the interesting thing is that Jesus as king did not look anything like what any earthly political leader or any earthly king looks like. You look at sort of the external appearances of his life, and Jesus was not born into a, a family of great wealth. He was not born into a family of great prominence. He was not an important 
person from an important family. He was uh, born to a family that lived in this sort of rural town of a couple hundred people out sort of in the sticks, right? Not near Jerusalem, not near the epicenter of the Jewish religion and faith, right? So all these external markers of Jesus's life show us that like, okay, he's being presented to us as a king, and yet also there's nothing about his life that looks very kingly. But what we see is that Jesus is a king, the Gospels are right when they tell us that. And he is unlike any earthly political leader that we have ever seen. Because Jesus is king, and the ascension shows him being enthroned in heaven at the right hand of God the Father and ruling and reigning over all things. And he's the one who is right now, in this very moment, enthroned in heaven, who is ruling and reigning over all things with justice and with equity and with wisdom and with love and all of the things that we never see or very seldom see in our earthly political leaders. We don't have a category for political leaders who live and lead with love and justice and equity for all the people and constantly do what is for the good of the people instead of the good of their own political gain. But Jesus is that king. And we see in his enthronement that he is the king over all creation. After he laid down his life, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he right now reigns with justice and wisdom and love. And as we sit here today, we live in this sort of already not yet of his kingdom. We live in the already not yet because Jesus is enthroned. He is the king over all creation. And yet our experience doesn't always seem to match that, right? His rule over all things has not been fully and finally expressed or realized in the way that we may want it to be. But the fact is that he is nonetheless enthroned in heaven. And we have the great hope that in the same way that he was resurrected, in the same way that he was taken from us, he will also return. And he will return to once and for all crush the head of the serpent. He will return once and for all to set all things right and to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so we don't sit here wondering what's going to happen in the end. Uh, We don't wait in sort of a a kind of hopefulness that's like, well, I hope that turns out good in the end. We wait with a hope-filled confidence, knowing that if he is for us, if the king over all creation is on our side, who can be against us? And so we live with that kind of hope day in and day out. So this is the good news of Easter, friends. He loves, he lives, and he reigns. So what do, we, what do we do with this? What, what can we take away from this here today? Uh, I want to give just a couple of uh, brief application points for you to consider. Uh, number one, believe the good news. That's the first way to respond to this, is simply to believe the good news. Believe the good news that Jesus went to the cross for you. That the love of God that is expressed in the cross is not just for humanity broadly, although it is for that. The love of God that is expressed in the cross is a love that he has for you. And so believe the good news that Jesus went to the cross for you. Believe the good news that his victory over death is your victory over death. Believe the good news that he is the king over all creation and that the king over all creation who is enthroned and transcends all things invites you to draw near. Isn't that amazing? Believe the good news. Jesus went to the cross for you. His victory of, over death is yours. And the king invites you to draw near. 
So that's number one, believe the good news. Number two, admittedly far less important than number one is come back next week. Um, As Chris said earlier, if Jesus has in fact defeated death and a whole new way of life has been opened to us, we ought to be the most curious people as to what does it look like for us to actually practice living that new life? What does it look like for us to actually take up the new life that is possible to us through the resurrection? And that's what we're going to be doing through that series is looking at those different practices uh, that are spiritual foundational rhythms. And uh, my guess is that there may be some of you here this morning who are looking at your life or aspects of your life and you're thinking to yourself, you know, this just is not working. You may be looking at your relationships, you may be looking at different areas of your life, your finances, your vocation, your parenting, whatever, and you're saying, you know, what I'm doing isn't working right now. And the idea of a fresh start, the idea of new opportunities and new life being open to me, that sounds really good right now. And so if that's you here this morning, uh, I want to just invite you to come back next week as we begin looking at what are the practices that we can actually take up so that we can enjoy this new life that God has provided for us in Christ. Okay? Now we get the chance, uh, as we do each week, to come to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, we get to remember in a special way not only the death of Jesus on our behalf, but also the resurrection of Jesus. And so as we come to the communion table, uh, yes, we are receiving what is uh, representative of his earthly broken body, but we receive that looking back on his broken body from this period in which we live where we know that he's risen and he's ascended. And so we uh, get to receive that broken body and shed blood given for us. It reminds us of the lengths to which God went for us. It reminds us of the love that God has for us. It reminds us that in Christ, his victory over death is ours. And it reminds us of his words when he told his disciples, I will drink this with you one day again. I will share this meal with you in my kingdom when I come back. And so we get to remember that and celebrate today. As we come to the communion table, would you take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection?